2: Hello. Welcome to part two of our psychedelic medicine special, recorded earlier this month at the Society for the Study of Addiction conference in Newcastle. You lot seem to really love part one with Dr. Ben Sessa. It was one of the most downloaded episodes ever on Say Why to Drugs, so thank you and thanks for all the messages about it. If you haven't listened yet, the link is on Acast now. So today I'm speaking to Dr. Albert Garcia-Romeo from Johns Hopkins University. Albert does a lot of research using psilocybin, the active compound in magic mushrooms, investigating it as a potential treatment for substance use problems, including to help people quit smoking, and also as a treatment for mood disorders. We talk a bit about how we became interested in the field of psychedelic medicine, a bit about what taking part in these studies might be like, so see if you can spot the bit where I get really excited about one particular aspect of the study, and also about his thoughts around the so-called renaissance in psychedelic medicine. I really, really enjoyed this episode, and I hope that you do too. So here we go.
1: So my name is uh, Albert Garcia-Romeo. I am a um, psychologist and I work at Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine in Baltimore, Maryland. I work with a group of pharmacologists, neuroscientists, and um, other um, psychiatrists and researchers there in the Department of Psychiatry and Behavioral Sciences, and um, we study a broad range of drugs um, and substances of abuse, but... Uh, one of our main areas of focus uh, has been uh, looking at the uh, naturally occurring hallucinogen psilocybin Uh, since about 2000. Our laboratory has been conducting human laboratory research with uh, psilocybin which is found in uh, so-called magic mushrooms and uh, we've been administering it to uh, a range of individuals um, both healthy normal volunteers uh, as well as uh, special populations that uh, we're trying to target for uh, possible therapeutic applications.
2: So what particularly got you interested in psilocybin?
1: Well, um, the laboratory where I'm working has been doing this work uh, for a very long time, so uh, they actually started this first round of projects when I was still in high school. Dr. Griffiths, uh, Roland Griffiths, who I'm working with, uh, really initiated this work um, uh, you know, based on his own interests, and he's done work with lots of different kinds of drug classes, um, sedative hypnotics, and a lot of different things aside from hallucinogens. Um, but my own interest really came from uh, some time that I spent uh, living in uh, the West in the United States in Montana. I was working uh, as a ranger, I guess, for the Forest Service um, during a time off during the summer in my undergraduate studies. And uh, my whole life I would spent in cities. I grew up in big cities and I went to school in cities um, that were fairly densely populated my whole life. And uh, when I went to Montana, it was very different. Uh, we were living in the mountains. Um, we were living out of backpacks and we were spending a lot of time in nature. And um, that led to a lot of uh, very extraordinary types of experiences that I had there. I think when I started reading into the psychological literature as an undergraduate, um, the closest match that I could find was really um, Abraham Maslow's conception of peak experiences. Uh, so just being out in nature for me, really for an extended period, for the first time in my life, um, I had you know sustained feelings of awe, um, feelings of um, you know interconnectedness with all things. Um, just being out in that in that wilderness area, and. Uh, I felt like it also gave me some newfound perspective or priorities in terms of my life directions. And so all of that I, I thought to be very in line with uh, Maslow's theories in terms of B, B motivations, these kinds of uh, motivations that self-actualizing indivi- individuals would have. And um, my takeaway from that was that those kinds of experiences that people could have in nature, or by other means, uh, may be really useful in terms of promoting mental health overall. Uh, And so that was kind of my entree into the area personally. And uh, as I later went on into graduate school, um, I started getting interested uh, more in altered states of consciousness. And, uh, you know, that. Uh, those can really come about in a number of ways, both uh, through intentional practices like um, prayer, fasting, meditation, yoga, um, as well as being occurring spontaneously sometimes uh, in nature, mm-hmm. and then also through use of psychoactive substances like psilocybin, uh, ayahuasca, mescaline. And uh, as I learned more about the you know different pharmacology um, involved in this, I became uh, more interested in using uh, pharmacological interventions as a potential uh, adjunct to what you'd consider more traditional psychological treatments, uh, particularly in um, treating mood and substance use disorders. Uh, However, as a caveat, many of these experiences seem to be useful for more than just treating disorders, but for um, well-functioning individuals, it can often help them to function better. And so that's another area of interest Uh, right now that we're looking into is enhancing creativity, creative problem solving, and just overall well-being in in people who are well. Um, But also from the clinical uh, perspective, the areas that seem to overlap very well with the states that psychedelics can sometimes bring about uh, seem to be addictions and uh, depressions or or mood disorders, uh, more generally speaking.
2: So what do you think it is about psychedelics and psilocybin maybe in particular that make them potentially helpful for things like mood disorders and addiction?
1: Uh, it's the type of experience that they can engender. Uh, and one of the remarkable things about these drugs, and you know, some of the findings from our lab have borne these out, is that um, the drug, like psilocybin, for instance, would last somewhere from six to eight hours in terms of the subjective effects of the drug. However, what we're finding more and more is that Um, when the experience is orchestrated in a very careful manner that people are attributing very high levels of meaning to the experience um, and that the experience itself is something that's considered meaningful and informative uh, for months or years afterwards. And so that's very different from what you might consider a standard antidepressant medication. For instance, with the SSRI, people have to take those kinds of drugs Uh, for weeks at a time before they start to see any effects, generally speaking. And, you know, a drug like, uh, for instance, uh, benzodiazepine or a stimulant like cocaine or methylphenidate, um, you can feel the acute effects right away, but they, by and large, don't produce these lasting effects. So people will feel under the influence for the acute drug effects. And then afterwards, they'll say, yes, I recall that experience with that drug, but it didn't change me or make any sort of lasting impact and so um, there's some something about the uh, serotonergic hallucinogens that function uh, as agonists at the serotonin 2a receptor Uh, so that includes drugs like lsd psilocybin um, as well as dimethyltryptamine or dmt which is found in ayahuasca Mm. and um, mescaline which is found in a couple of different uh, cacti that are used uh, by indigenous people in Central, uh, North, and South America. But uh, those drugs, for some reason, and it may be because of their serotonergic mechanism of action, uh, seem to leave an imprint of meaningfulness in a way that most other drug classes are not able to do, at least uh, from my understanding.
2: How, How do you go about using these drugs in a sort of therapeutic situation?
1: thankfully uh, we're not reinventing the wheel here uh and so um this has been done for thousands of years in indigenous populations that use these drugs as parts of their sacred rituals it's also been hypothesized that the sacred Eleusinian mysteries which were part of uh, ancient greek life were also using similar kind of um wow. uh, drugs although that's not been um in any way conclusively uh proven uh still this is something that it seems that many people have have woven into their fabric of life uh over the history of modern civilization uh and pre-modern civilization as well Uh, and so there there is a sort of blueprint for how to do this in a way that's safe um and uh, even more so in the 20th century after the discovery of LSD by Dr. Albert Hoffman in 1943. You know, there was a, a wave of uh, research with LSD in, in psychiatry. And so uh, some of that research was uh, specifically looking at the use of psychedelics uh, and LSD as a treatment for a variety of disorders and most notably addiction and alcoholism. Uh, and so... Um, they set a lot of the groundwork for what we do today, and I'm very fortunate to work with Dr. Bill Richards, who is part of a, you know a pioneering group of scientists and, and clinicians who were working with um, psychedelics in the 1960s, and so a lot of the procedures that we use in the lab now are, uh, in a way, inherited from uh, those earlier uh, generations of, of uh, psychedelic scientists and, and researchers you know, they had a protocol that we've modified um, as needed, but um, the protocols that we use now generally tend to use an already uh, evidence based approach, motivational enhancement therapy, um, cognitive behavioral therapy, uh, some sort of uh, therapeutic container or intervention that is used uh, in addition to the, the administration of the drug. Mm-hmm. Um, the drugs themselves have very interesting and peculiar. And unique profile of acute effects, but uh, in order to get uh, optimal therapeutic benefits, it's really necessary to embed the drug experience within. I in th- this is my opinion, uh, within therapeutic container or setting, uh, some sort of context in which there's a structure, uh, and there there's a specific intention uh, for the for the experience and also for the whole uh, endeavor. So usually. Um, when we administer psilocybin in the laboratory, uh, we would do anywhere from six to eight hours of preparation, preparatory counseling um, before the drug is administered. That would generally take place over about four weeks. Mm-hmm. So um, we'd have therapy kind of once a week for about a month before we would give anyone any drugs at all. Uh, and in that time, there's uh, you know rapport building between the Uh, Session monitors or the people who are going to be present during the session, and the the participant or the volunteer, and uh, there's also specialized content depending on what the uh, intent of uh, of the study or you know you know in the future would be treatments we hope Mm -hmm. uh, are so uh, for smoking cessation we do uh, specific modules of cognitive behavioral therapy that focus on. Uh, motivations to quit smoking, um, reasons uh, that people want to stop, barriers that might you know uh, make it difficult for them to stop, and so forth. Um, and we also do a sort of life review. And so with our smoking cessation participants, um, you know that's a general life review in terms of understanding where they are in their life now. That wants you know brought them to want to quit smoking, but also how. Um, they began smoking and, and sort of the role that it's played in their lives and their relationships over time. Once we've set the, set the stage, as it were, uh, by doing all of that preparatory counseling and the volunteers feel comfortable with the monitors, um, then we administer uh, usually one to anywhere from one to three uh, moderate or high doses of psilocybin, uh, depending on the study and the protocol that we're, that we're using, and those are typically um, interspersed with integration or aftercare uh, meetings where we spend time um, looking at the content of the experience, uh, trying to unpack that and understand the way that it relates to their lives overall, as well as the way that it may have uh, produced any sort of insight or changes uh, in their attitudes or behaviors and then you know, building on those in a positive direction.
2: So while people are actually intoxicated, does the sort of talking therapy carry on or do they have their intoxication experience and then talk about it afterwards?
1: So um, there are two schools, if you will, of uh, psychedelic therapy that historically um, became eminent in the 1950s and 60s when uh, this research was more commonplace. And um, one was a, more based on a Freudian psychoanalytic model Uh, in which small doses of psychedelics were administered. This was called the psycholytics uh, psychotherapy. And the idea was that using small doses of these psychedelics, you would be able to do more profound uh, and intensive talk therapy with uh, patients or clients because uh, their defense mechanisms would be uh, somewhat incapacitated during the time of the drug action. And you're seeing kind of a renewal of interest in this area although from a different angle not psychoanalytic per se but uh, in this kind of trend right now um, that's looking at microdosing using very small doses of psychedelics um, to sort of uh, alter one's daily life functioning we are working from a what we call psychedelic model psychotherapy and so um, people when they're under the influence of these high doses that we use and so psychedelic psychotherapy focuses on using high doses and um, when those high doses are on board, uh, people are generally not responsive and rational in the way they normally would be. Mm. And so uh, we tend to uh, encourage them to be introspective, uh, and we also engineer the space to, to be maximally introspective in the sense that people are encouraged uh, both beforehand and during the experience uh, to lay down on a couch Um, Their eyes are usually covered with eye shades, and they um, are generally wearing uh, some headphones uh, through which we play program of music. And so that's all kind of intended to immerse them in their internal experience and so that they're not distracted with, for instance, social cues, uh, wanting to uh, entertain the monitors who they've already built a relationship with, uh, any of the unusual perceptual uh, experiences that may be going on with eyes open, so things like walls are breathing or the carpet is moving. Um, it can be very exciting or interesting, especially to a hallucinogen naive participant who's never seen anything like that. Uh, but we tend to think of those as missing the point of the experience because a lot of the more profound material, um, at least uh, you know from what we understand, seems to come out when people are kind of engaged within themselves with uh, the experience. And so, I often say to people that we work with, sure, it's probably very exciting for you when it's happening and you probably want to talk about it with someone that you're with. um, But it's kind of like talking through a really good movie. Uh, You end up missing parts of it that could be very important to the plot line. And so, uh, you know, we kind of encourage people to watch the watch the film in its entirety uh, in, a, in a sort of immersive way and then afterwards we just try to dissect or unpack it as much as possible.
2: That's such an interesting way of putting it, I love that. Just as a little aside, what, what kind of music do you play people?
1: Um, a lot of the music that we used was actually designed um, from a playlist by a, a music therapist named Helen Bonney uh, who was working with uh, Bill Richards and others uh, back in the 60s uh, and so a good deal of it, um, you know, it was, Programmed to kind of occur in stages, uh, where uh, it follows the drug effects because the way that the drug works, the initial uh, subjective effects begin maybe thirty to thirty to sixty minutes after ingestion, uh, and they uh, eventually kind of peak after two to three hours. And so, um, the music is meant to be emotionally evocative um, in a way that follows those stages of, of drug effects. Uh, and a lot of it, uh, when it was put together originally. Uh, was including uh, choral music, um, Western classical music. Uh, those are kind of the ma- the major um, starting points. And as we've gone on, uh, you know, doing this research, uh, we've included more world music, um, classical Indian music, uh, chanting. Uh, so we've started to bring in other elements, uh, as well as sort of uh, beginning to use uh, experimental manipulations of the music to see the way that that um, may or may not um, have effects on the way that people experience uh, the drug and we also have let uh, in some of the protocols people bring in their own music which has been fascinating in and of itself because mm. uh, you get anything from um, classic rock music which you you know, would associate with psychedelics like Pink Floyd um, but you also see stuff like um, whale song recorded underwater sounds of nature uh, jazz music uh, other classical pieces that we've not brought in uh, into our own playlist. And so there's there's a real wide range of, of uh, music that people bring in uh, on their own account. Um, but uh, typically speaking, it's a lot of what we're using right now is um, Western classical music, uh, so, mostly wordless.
2: Yeah, I'm a bit of a music nerd, so I mm. find that particularly fascinating. So you were running an experiment where you were getting people to bring in their own music.
1: For our smoking cessation protocols, we decided to... Um, let people bring in some about an hour's worth of music on their own just to see how that impacted them. And, uh, you know, some people decide not that they don't really want to bring anything. Um, and other people, you know, this becomes a, a project for them.
2: <laughs> yeah, so, I can imagine. Yeah. Um,
1: so, yeah, it's it's been interesting to see that differentiation and in, in the way that people respond to that.
2: So you're presenting at this conference tomorrow in a session called The Psychedelic Renaissance in Addiction Treatment. I guess I just wanted to know sort of, what what are you going to be presenting about? And do you think that this term psychedelic renaissance, do you think that's quite accurate?
1: Uh, yeah, I think so. I mean, there's been a lot of interest over the last, you know, 10 to 20 years in revisiting these substances as uh, both uh, powerful tools for understanding the nature of mind, uh, brain and consciousness and the way those things interrelate. Um, and uh, at a more pragmatic level uh, as uh, potential medications or therapeutic medic, yeah, medications, basically therapeutics that we can sort of, uh, use, uh, within interventions to help people, uh, when they're having, uh, struggles with, you know, a variety of different mental health issues. Uh, and so, um, you know, that spanned, as I said, at our laboratory, uh, about 20 years or so. Um, and, you know, over that period of time, there's just been more and more, uh, research and interest, uh, you know, the, Franz Wallenweider and his laboratory in uh, Zurich have also been working over roughly the same span of time and have produced a prodigious amount of research. Um, and you know more recently there have been um, people working at University of New Mexico, um, New York University, uh, University of Alabama, Birmingham, um, Imperial College London is doing a tremendous uh, amount of, of fascinating work, um, particularly focusing on, Uh, the neural substrates of the psychedelic experience, but also now moving more towards some of the clinical applications. Um, Charlie Grobe was working on this too uh, early in the the 2000s, looking at uh, psilocybin and ayahuasca over at UCLA. So um, there's really just been an exponential increase of interest and proliferation of this uh, research uh, in the field uh, over time. And that's despite um, significant hurdles to be able to to conduct research with these substances. At least in the U.S., um, you know there needs to be approval from uh, you know the Drug Enforcement Administration, the DEA, the FDA, Food and Drug Administration. Uh, there also has to be um, you know approvals from an institution like Johns Hopkins, uh, which can be sometimes difficult to get, um, yeah. just because there's the risk involved as with any research. Um, but there's also uh, cultural baggage, uh, stigma around these drugs. Um, and so I do think, though, that the term renaissance is accurate in terms of the vastly increased interest that we're seeing now as compared to, say, when I was growing up in the 1980s, uh, when it was not something that was really being done. Human laboratory research with psychedelics uh, was largely not being done at all at that time. Mm.
2: Do some, I mean, I imagine some people are really keen to take part because of the psychedelics, but do you find that some people are put off taking part because of this idea of having to take a psychedelic substance? Oh,
1: yeah. I mean, some people will probably never know if this works for some people because they would never agree to do it, mm-hmm. uh, and that's fine. Um, I think we just came from a very interesting uh, symp- or I just came from a very interesting symposium. Uh, Dr. Adrian Taylor, Tom Thompson talking about using um, exercise based interventions to help people with substance use disorders. And uh, again, you never know if that will work for everyone because there are some people who just will not do it. Uh, And probably the same for psychedelics. Yeah. There are people who hear about this and say, you know, I'm not interested. This is not something I'm comfortable with. And I have absolutely no problem with that. I don't think this is something that everyone should do. Um, But Uh, For people, particularly, I think, uh, for people who have run the gamut of what's considered standard of care, treatment as usual, interventions, medications, and behavioral interventions for, uh, you know, again, a variety of health conditions, but particularly things like anxiety, depression, and substance use disorders, and have not gotten to a place where they they feel successfully resolved with the issue, uh, then to be able to offer another Type of uh, modality of treatment is very valuable, and um, you can see that also taking place. For instance, with uh, MDMA research and post traumatic stress, um, a lot of people aren't able to uh, respond well to uh, the the normal standard of care, which uh, you know met uh, pharmacologically is is not very well defined, and you know in terms of exposure therapy, it can be very aversive, and so people don't adhere to treatment um, often. And so they don't get better and they tend to self-medicate in other ways. Uh, But if you can find another treatment that might work, and whether it be MDMA or psilocybin or something else, uh, I absolutely think that uh, it should be studied intensively and it should be made available if it's found to be effective uh, to people who who need help.
2: And do you think there are some people who should avoid taking psychedelics, so I'm thinking people who might be at high risk of something, sort of psychotic disorders or that kind of thing.
1: Um, so the uh, research that we do, um, we tend to uh, be very careful in screening folks, especially if they have a pre, uh, pre-existing pre uh, disposition to something like psychotic disorders, whether it be uh, personal or familial. It's not well understood in terms of what are the, the links between giving people high doses of psychedelics, and if they have these kinds of uh, personal or family histories of, of psychotic disorders. Um, but the risk has been deemed you know, too, too much, and yeah. so we, we tread carefully there. You know, a lot of the work now is looking at people who have treatment resistant depression. So obviously those folks uh, sometimes are suffering from suicidal ideation, uh, suicidality, those kinds of things. So again, it's, it's important to be very careful there. But again, those are the people who need most help. And uh, so, um, you know, we have been working with, uh, with those populations and will continue to. Um, but yeah, I think the main the main thing has been a fear of precipitating a uh, ongoing uh, psychotic disorders, uh, that, uh, go on after, you know, these high dose, uh, hallucinogens, uh, administrations. And so we definitely, uh, shy away from giving these kinds of drugs to people who, uh, have those kinds of conditions either personally or in their family, um, as well as sometimes bipolar, um, because there's some concern that, uh, in a person again with predisposition to bipolar disorders, um, that that could uh, elicit a manic episode, uh, although some newer research with ayahuasca hasn't found that that's not necessarily a big concern, but it's still something that we're careful of. And um, people with personality disorders, um, which, you know, that's something that's a shifting landscape in terms of, uh, you know, classification, but for what was considered dsm four um, tr personality disorders, uh, those, those folks also... You know, we'd be careful in terms of administering uh, psychedelics just because uh, we'd be afraid to exacerbate the condition.
2: So, I guess before we wrap up, how how far down this path towards getting to a point where we can u- really use these psychedelics as treatments are we? Sort of, what stage are we at? Are we are we running? trials? Are we testing these things? Like,
1: where are we? Uh, So in the US, we, I mean, and I think this is actually common uh, internationally, but, um, you know, there are certain phases that need to be um, met in order for drugs to be approved for clinical use. And, um, you know, there's generally um, phase zero, phase one, phase two, and phase three, and then there's uh, phase four um, trials of, of different kinds of substances. And, you know, often the phase zero trials are preclinical. They look at um, animal animal research, uh, phase one trials are safety trials, um, just seeing if it's safe to give to humans. Um, and then, um, you know, phase two is often um, feasibility trials and, and continued safety monitoring. And then the phase three is uh, efficacy testing. Uh, so once you've established that the drug is safe in animals and then in humans, and that there seems to be a signal that, shows that it could be useful for a particular um, disorder, illness, uh, then the phase three testing is meant to kind of test that in a a way that is uh, as, you know, uh, foolproof as possible. And so often that's uh, randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled trials, Um, there's a whole, you know, list of problems in terms of doing double-blind placebo-controlled trials with psychedelics, because uh, the double blind usually doesn't last very long. Um, but um, right now, within the MDMA, for instance, uh, uh, that's currently moving into the beginning of phase three clinical trials for post traumatic stress. Uh, and so um, we could be seeing uh, acceptance of MDMA as a medical treatment within the next 10 years. Um, and with psilocybin, uh, it's a little bit less well-defined. Um, probably the most conclusive evidence that's been done in control trials with psilocybin is com- is coming for um, cancer patients with uh, symptoms of anxiety and depression. Um, and so we did a large trial of that, large, relatively speaking. It was about 50 patients. And um, NYU uh, also uh, did a similar trial at the same time with another 30 to 40 patients. And we uh, the results were resoundingly positive in terms of uh, these were uh, patients with life-threatening cancer diagnoses. Uh, they all had some symptoms of depression and or anxiety, and they were all seeing um, in a uh, you know, controlled manner uh, that they were having these ongoing reductions after administration of a moderate to high dose of psilocybin in their anxiety and depression symptoms, and these lasted anywhere from three to nine months in duration. Uh, after a single administration, uh, so uh, that though is not encompassing what you would consider a clear cut indication. Uh, so, for instance, um, major depressive disorder, post traumatic stress, you know, something that in the DSM you would find as a, a a particular code, if you will, and so that makes it a little more complex in terms of developing psilocybin clinically. Um, nevertheless, um, you know, the people that I'm working with and the group, you know, a larger group internationally. Uh, you know, including the folks at um, London, Zurich, and and um, you know elsewhere in the U.S. Are, you know, we're really kind of working together uh, to try to find ways to test um, efficacy for specific syndromes, and then uh, if that's established, then hopefully it, it does become available uh, for medical use. And so something like that again might be anywhere in the next ten to fifteen years, um, depending on. Um, regulatory and uh, funding considerations and so forth.
2: It's still a bit of a way off, but we're kind of getting tantalizing glimpses of the possibilities of these substances.
1: Yeah. Or well, maybe
2: even more than that. That's slightly underselling it, perhaps.
1: Well, you know, we we try to be very cautious as opposed to some of the researchers in the 1960s, um, you know, Timothy Leary, for instance, who famously proscribed that hallucinogens be used kind of willy-nilly by anyone, uh, and so we're kind of falling on the more conservative end of that spectrum now, uh, saying, you know we our findings are very positive, but we you know need to do these large-scale, you know carefully controlled trials, which we do. Um, but it is frustrating because um, I get inquiries from people, for instance, who want to quit smoking uh, in India or Italy or California, And you know we can't really offer them anything because they, you know, can't really be around for the the long term
0: yeah.
1: um, protocols that we have in place. Uh, so we hope that eventually this will be something that people will be able to access wherever they're at. But yes, it'll probably be some time until that you know is the case. Uh, and we'll see.
2: Well, that seems like a good place to wrap it up. Then thank you so much, Dr. Albert Garcia-Romeo. Thank you again. No
1: problem. Thank you, Susie.
2: And there we go. Thanks again to Albert for taking the time out of the conference to chat to me. If you enjoyed this episode, I recommend the previous episode with Dr. Ben Sessa, the episode about psychedelics, the DMT episode, and maybe the MDMA episode as well. The third and final instalment of this special mini-series will be up next, and in that I'm talking to Professor Celia Morgan from Exeter University about her research into ketamine. See you then! You've been listening to Say Why To Drugs with me, Dr Susie Gage. The music was by Jim Murray. The artwork was by At My Name Is Ad. Say Why To Drugs would not have been possible without the generous support of I'm A Scientist, Get Me Out Of Here, the Medical Research Council, and Scroobius Pip's Distraction Pieces Network.